0: Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel Rubel, and this is One-on-One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to our new series on Matan's One-on-One podcast. Starting from Parsha Tshmot, we'll be putting out a weekly 30-minute episode on the Parsha, but with a twist. Each episode will aim to highlight a figure, ancient, pre-modern, contemporary, who shares an idea on the Parsha itself or an idea that directly relates to the events in the Parsha. Each week, I will be sitting down with a guest for a short conversation about a figure and or an idea that they are passionate about. To open up the Book of Shmot, I'm thrilled to be sitting here with Matan's season tour guide Shuli Mishkin, who will provide us with some necessary um, necessary background for how to understand the entire Exodus story, uh, if we can call it Shuli sort of Exodus in its ancient Near Eastern context. Sounds good. Sounds good to you. So, without further ado, today's episode uh, with Shuli.
1: Okay. Thanks. Um, so I'll start by saying that a few years ago, some people—people people who live in Israel or were visiting at the time—may remember that the Israel Museum put on a spectacular exhibit that was called Paro In Kanaan. Uh Basically, it was not about Itziat Mitzrayim; it was about the years that the Egyptians ruled in the land of Israel, which is more or less contemporary with our understanding of when the Jews are slaves in Egypt. And It is very interesting. That's not our topic today, but. But you went through the exhibit and there were all these fabulous artifacts and it was beautiful. And then you came into a somewhat darkened, empty room. And in the empty room, there were no artifacts. There was just a film that was playing that had various scholars and archaeologists talking about the fact that there is no historical basis for the exodus. And the fact that the room was empty was very stark and very telling, uh, and for believing people, very uh, upsetting and challenging, exactly. Now, this is really the point at which we're starting up until really very recently, Nobody really questioned the historicity of the Exodus, right? It's, okay, you might question certain details, certain miracles, but that the event happened, right? Of course it happened. First of all, why would a people write down a terrible and degrading thing like hundreds of years of slavery in such a proud way in a book if it didn't happen? That's number one. And it's also, and as they acknowledged in this movie, by the way, even the very anti, uh, the Exodus is so central to Jewish identity. How could something that's so central be invented. Right? But in the last, I don't know, century, maybe a little bit less, there have been many uh, challenges put forward by historians and Egyptologists and archaeologists saying, well, we don't have anything written in the annals of Egyptian history, which are very rich. We don't have any physical artifacts that prove this story. So clearly, it must have been made up from whole cloth. And we can give all kinds of examples of Jewish and non Jewish scholars who talk about this. However, Now, as we know more and more about Egypt, right, in the last 100, 150 years, we're learning about Egypt, things that we never knew before. I just listened to a fascinating podcast about the Rosetta Stone, right? Before you could decipher hieroglyphics, we didn't really know anything about Egypt. Now we know so much more. And even if we don't have the story written down, so many pieces in a parallel of the source sto- in, mean a parallel in a parallel source, source, right? In an Egyptian source. So many pieces of the story, names and concepts and uh, and words are ring very, very true. Now that's one point that's important. I'll just
0: add one piece, Julie, yeah. as from the biblical perspective, that your question goes beyond the question of documentary hypothesis or different academic ideas that challenge the historicity of Torah, which they do all the time because here you have a whole, world of research that you would expect there to be support or some basis for this incredibly monumental formative story of ours so it's it's a bigger question than uh than creation of the world or, or other parts or it's it's similar in its scope i would think to entering into Eretz israel which also we have a tremendous amount of archaeology so the question becomes not just is the torah a history book is it supposed to reflect back to us exactly what happened um but it also is well. There's a tremendous amount of of extra biblical
1: content Correct. we have, so we would we, we would about. expect to see it. Why aren't we written about? But even deeper than that, you cannot take away the Exodus Yitzhak Mitzrayim from Judaism. It's a very very problematic thing. <laughs> the most problematic. It's what our entire relationship with God is based on. You cannot take away the Exodus. So you have to talk about this, you have to think about this. But even if, and, and this is where I think you're going to have something interesting to say, even if you don't have an issue with this, I'm a believer, and that's fine, and don't talk to me about archaeology. Once you, and you're taking Itziat Mitzrayim as a given, but when you understand the context uh, of Egypt and the story the story becomes so much richer and so much deeper
0: right if you use if you use the the background and all that we do know even if you're not looking at it to reaffirm your faith or belief in the historicity of the story it still is unbelievably enriching right that's the the point exactly. that you're getting exactly
1: because you're reading it i mean you know take any kind of a modern example go see a movie or watch a television show and you don't know anything about the current events of the 21st century you're going to be a little lost. But if you know <laughs> what's going is corona? on, exactly. Yeah. But if you know what's important at the time, and what are basic ideas at the time, the text has so many deeper layers. And that's what we're going to explore a little bit today.
0: Yeah. And if I could just say one piece here, which is uh, the figure that I want to highlight today for today's uh, Parsha in the future, I hope that we'll also have a complete episode on the topic. And the figure I want to highlight for today is uh, Moshe David, or Umberto Casuto, uh, who lived between 1883 and 1951. And he was an Italian biblical uh, commentator, but also actually originally a historian and researcher of the ancient Near East and Semitic languages. Now, I have to say, Shuli, that Casuto is one of the commentators that's held dearest to my heart. Younger students mm-hmm. call it my obsession. Um, but uh, he really was an unbelievable figure. He studied in the University of Florence. He became a rabbi and dean of the Beit Mejrash in the city. Uh, in 1925, he actually left his position there and went to Florence and eventually moved uh, Mamash towards, uh, at the beginning of World War II, he moved to Israel uh, to become a professor in Hebrew University because he lost his position uh, where he was working then in, uh, in the University of Rome. And what eventually became what saved him from the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his his son uh, was killed. Uh, he really has a fascinating and also very tragic um, and paradigmatic story of his time. Uh, but what I want to say about Kasuto, which is that what we have of his, what he managed to do before he died at a, at a not so um, and not so late age, is he has a commentary on the Book of Breshit and the Book of Shmot. Now he really, and not all of Shmot. He goes head to head with the documentary hypothesis, mm-hmm. with what is the, uh, which, which is the you know general assumed, uh, um, it's a basic assumption in the biblical world, uh, and he he really ha- he, from the beginning to the end of whatever he has written, he goes against those assumptions. He tries to disprove the documentary hypothesis. He assumes that the Torah is a unified document. Uh, he doesn't have what we would today call completely. Classical traditional perspectives on Torah mm-hmm. Um but his his work is incredibly informative uh, and I think inspiring and unbelievably creative uh, for those who are interested in something that has a little bit more of an academic bent. And I'll just say that his his one of his basic assumptions and how he understands the Torah is that. The pshat is not what we understand the verses to mean, but rather what the giver of the Torah wanted the generations who received the Torah to understand. Okay, so it's not so many, a
1: subjective understanding. Exactly.
0: It's not, it's very not a postmodern idea. Okay, also was, you know, before that, that wave of research, but, uh, but very much what did God intend the people to hear when the Torah was given? And so he said that in order to understand what that pshat is or to understand the Torah, one has to. It's not just a nice idea as you're suggesting before. One has to understand the cultural milieu of the generation of the Exodus. I Meaning not only what was in ancient Egypt but also how did the initial Israelites, how would they have received this information which you're totally going to get at uh, in, in today's episode. Uh, and so he his, his commentary is incredibly informative. It also exists in English translation uh, and he says that one must study archaeology uh, and all other extra biblical sources to actually understand what the Torah is saying. And he was the first main con- contributor, certainly a Jew, who contributed to understanding of ancient texts. He was around when, you know, Ugaritic was uh, was sort of discovered and all of these uh, manuscripts and artifacts were coming coming to light. So he really is one of the authoritative voices till today uh, in, in this field of research.
1: Okay, so he's definitely the idea that text must be informed by context is something that we are definitely going to be talking about today. Um, so let's take a look at some of the elements in the story that we sort of take for granted. We don't really think so much about them. So if we want to look in our Parsha, right, we have this long uh, and and somewhat exhausting encounter of Moshe and God uh, at the Sned, the burning bush, and, and Moshe has to be convinced, and he's not going to do it, and how is he going to do it? And at a certain point, right, in Dalet, um Dalet, Vayomar Elav Hashem, uh, what do you have there in your hand? Yomer Mateh. Okay, now the mate, the staff, as we know, if we know the story, the mate is gonna keep on following Moshe. He is it is with him through the very end, right? He takes the mate to par'o and he uses the mate to do all of the, the various makot, and the mate is what you use when you are doing kriyat yamsuf and the mate is with moshe the entire time, right? what's the big deal? Why do you need a mate? You need a mate because every ruler in Egypt, if you ever look at ancient, um, whether they're like Stella, right, different monumental uh, inscriptions and depictions of Paro or, or, or of a female Paro, the same thing, he's always holding a staff A staff is the key to your power, right? It's the symbol of power in Egypt. She's never seen without a staff. Uh, The staff sometimes has uh, an animal head on the top of it, but it is very much a symbol of power. Now Moshe coming before Pharaoh, if he is coming as the representative of God, you're a ruler and I am representing a ruler. You have a staff, I have a staff. If I don't have a staff, It doesn't mean anything. It would be
0: like walking into the White House with a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. You know what I'm saying? You have to come in a suit.
1: You have to come in a suit. You have to come with the trappings of power. And a staff is the trapping of power. Okay, now let's just continue with the. Wait, uh, the sorry, st-
0: there were female paros? I, I got stuck there for paros, a second. Yes,
1: there are female paros. Okay. Or, you know, paros' wives who also have power. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a different podcast. Okay. Uh, okay, so the story goes on, right? The, the Hashem says, What do you have in your hand? He says, Mate. Throw it on the ground, right? And we all have this image in our head from Gan right? It turns into a snake, and later on, Aaron's going to do it. It's going to turn into a tanin, a crocodile. So we read it, and we say, oh, that's that's really cool. That's scary. That's a good magic trick. It's not just a good magic trick, okay? It's much more than a good magic trick, because animals are super important in the Egyptian pantheon. There are many, many, many different gods, and the cobra, in particular, right, is the symbol of uh, a goddess called Wajet. She's the protector of Lower Egypt, and if you've ever seen pictures Aladdin. All right. Or, or if you've seen Aladdin. <laughs> High culture. got their different cultural <laughs> contexts, right? You know that the paro often wears yes. a crown, uh, a diadem? What's the word that I want? The thing? I, everyone who's, Yosef is watching me and I'm doing this thing on my forehead. Well, I just know a diadem from Harry
0: Potter. So I'm going to throw off my high, high uh, literary references yes. here <laughs> from the diadem of Ravenclaw. Anyone else know what I'm talking okay, about? Okay. So
1: you have this tiara, but it has this stylized cobra yes. coming out of it, right? And that's another super symbol of power. That, having that on your crown means you are a legitimate ruler. So here I am, Moshe, representing God, who of course, is the ruler, showing up with my mate, because that shows I'm a ruler, and I'm turning into a snake, which is the power of the ruler in Egypt. So I'm taking your symbols and your trappings of power, and I am subverting them, right? And I am making them be about me, not me, but my God. And and that's where, you know, Paro's saying, who is this God, and why should I listen to him? You better listen to him. He's got the same strength as you, but much more. Right, and we have another fascinating idea. Right, what, what does God say He's going to do to Paro? He's going to take B'nai Israel out of Egypt. Biyad chazaka ubezroa netuya. Right, and this is this is a great a great phrase. Right, a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and we love to use this phrase. Why? Why, why why these particular images, right, and medieval scholars had a lot of trouble with the anthropomorphizing of God, and does God have an arm? does God? Have, that's not what's important to us right now. Hey, um, Rabbi Dr. Josh Berman has done a, a lot of research about um, Paro Ramses II. Uh, we won't get into the very thorny question of which paro is the paro of the Exodus, but it's very telling, as Dr. Yale Ziegler talks about this, uh, that the Torah doesn't tell us who the Paro of the Exodus is. Right? We do know other Paros. We hear about Paro. Shishak, we hear about Paro. Oh,
0: many people who aren't even at all familiar with ancient Egypt think that Paro is one guy. Yeah, but Paro
1: just means that it's king. it's all Paro. Paro just, just means, means king. king. It's just a generic name. Why don't we tell his name? Uh, yeah, all talks about how we don't we don't care. You are so insignificant that we are not going to dignify you with a name. But for argument's sake, right, in terms of the the story and the timeline, it seems likely that the power of the Exodus is Ramses II, who was an incredibly powerful, uh, long-lived ruler. Okay, he ruled for over sixty years, um, and. Uh, Rabbi Berman, Dr. Berman, talks about uh, the major battle of Ramses II is a battle, a place called Kadesh, right? Uh, And he wins it, right? And there's an epic poem celebrating his victory, And this poem is written on his funerary temple, and it's written all over the place, and everybody knows it, right? It's like the most popular rap song of all time, (laughs) Right? And what Dr. It's Berman,
0: like we are the champions. I it's was, it's exactly, like we are the champions. Only
1: slightly more articulate. Right. Um, but what Dr. Berman does is he says the imagery that's in that poem is used in Shirat Hayam. Most specifically, the only king that is referred to in the ancient world as someone who has Gosh, an oh no. outstretched arm and a strong hand is Ramses II. You think you're the one with the outstretched arm? You're so wrong, right? And taking that imagery rather than saying, uh, and this is, I think, something that Kasuto does a lot, right? Rather than saying this is copying and and it's derivative of Egyptology and it it lowers us, it it raises us because it's saying we're going to take your language that you use all the time and we're going to show you that it's not about you but it's about God.
0: Yeah, and I would also just add there that Kasuto and others who study, really incorporated their study of the ancient Near East into their commentaries all say that we look for, we parallel in order to mine for the differences, meaning we parallel in order to see where the Torah has its individual contribution. Um, It doesn't, and initially when someone is first exposed to these ideas that there are, that the Torah echoes things that existed in the world, right? There's some how we have this idea that if it only existed in the Torah, that's the only way it's special. Mm-hmm. But no, the Torah is responding to the time in which it's given as well as also being eternal. That's it's the uniqueness of but the Torah. But that makes it
1: very powerful. If you are a, a, a Jewish slave, right, a Hebrew slave, and you've heard this all your life about Ramses, and suddenly you're hearing it about a different being, you know that language. That's the language you speak.
0: It also makes the language relevant, meaning this is what you do as a teacher all the time is you spend your time um, arbitrating between ancient texts and a modern audience. Mm-hmm. And you have to constantly make it relevant to y- make sure that you're using words and phrases that resonate in the hearts and minds of the people that you're teaching. So yeah. the Torah is doing the exact same thing. It's sort of just being the first pedagogical, you know, document out there that we have. Is You have to be relevant to your time.
1: Exactly, exactly. And, and, and I think it shows us, again, the depth, but it also shows us that clearly this is a text that has to be written down at the time or, or orally proclaimed, however you want to talk about it, at the time that this happens because 500, 1,000 years later, nobody knows about this stuff. Right? Ramses has faded from history. It has to be relevant to the time that it's happening. So that's another beautiful proof for the historicity of the story. Yeah. I will say that if anyone wants to
0: read more uh, of uh, of Professor Berman's work, then you can find that particular article. We'll link it in the show notes. It's on the Mosaic yeah, website. it's a great article. Uh, it's has a long article on the Mosaic website. Uh, he also, in his book, Anima Mamin, which is a great book sitting right here in front of me <laughs> on my table. We don't um, get commission. We No, no, no royalties. Unfortunately. Um, it's also a great book to read, and he incorporates some of those ideas into the book itself.
1: So we could talk about so many other examples. There are so many other gods that show up Uh, as uh, you know that are belittled essentially right we have the tanin we mentioned before the crocodile Uh, and we know that paro is called the Hatanin hagado right the great crocodile we have this great god right i wish we had pictures in a podcast we don't but this is a this is a great if you if you grew up on lyle the crocodile as i did right you can i don't know who that is uh, 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 is cultural (laughs) problems um (laughs) google a picture of the god sobek you will be terrified. He is a very creepy looking god. Okay. Crocodiles are terrifying. If you know whether you know it from, you know, looking at ancient Egypt pictures or you know it from Prince of Egypt, right? The babies are depicted as being thrown into the Nile and eaten by the crocodiles. Crocodiles are very terrifying, right? But not only are they terrifying, there's also a crocodile god called Sobek. Uh, and when anything
0: with power anything, you often became a god in the ancient exactly, world. Meaning but we, we attribute animals that, that what are that strong, feeling of being scared becomes a, a a divine power.
1: Exactly. But what happens is that Aaron, later on, right, in the next parsha, his mate becomes a tanin. And the the magicians do that too. But his tanin eats all the other taninim, right? And again, it's not just a cute little story. It's a story that's showing my god is much more powerful than your god's.
0: Yeah, but utilizing all the tools that were recognizable to the people of ancient Egypt. Okay, Shuli, tell us about the heavy heart.
1: Okay, so we we have a few phrases, right, that, uh, and this is an interesting theological problem. The Rambam talks about it, that God's going to make Paro essentially refuse at a certain point, and then he's going to be punished even more. We will not get into the theological problem. But we have two phrases that are used. Hashem says, akshet lev paro, right, I'll make Paro's heart hard, which we can understand that. That's a metaphor that makes sense. But there's another one where it says, kaved lev paro, I'll make Paro's heart heavy, and that's a stranger idea. Why would your heart be heavy? And in order to understand this, you have to understand the Egyptian view of the afterlife. First of all, the afterlife is super important to Egyptians, right? You can only enter the next world through Egypt. We know we have all these incredible things that the Pyros are buried with, that they're going to need in the afterlife. right? It's, it's a huge part of their theology. But They believe that not everybody's gonna get in, right? Most cultures believe the good people get into the afterlife and the bad people don't. Uh, And the Egyptians are no exception, but how do you know who's good and who's bad? So after death, right, remember what the Egyptians do, they embalm, they take out all your internal organs, they embalm the organs as well, right? And after death, um, your heart, in the, like the portal to the afterlife, your heart is put on a scale and it's weighed, and it's weighed, right? Picture your Rosh Hashanah cards with the Zil, scales. No, it's
0: mamasha, right? uh, in dialogue with that, with that idea.
1: Yeah, that you have the scales and you have a heart on one dish, right? And what goes on the other side that you weigh it against? Candy. Something, <laughs> no, something called the feather of mat, which you can imagine is rather light. Now the trick is that your heart has to be light and not heavy, right? We would think maybe it should be heavier, it's full of good deeds. No, it has to be lighter, because it's not full of all that black, terrible stuff that encrusts your heart when you're a bad person, Okay. okay? And if your heart is too heavy, if your heart is light, Hooray, you passed, you get in. If your heart is heavy, guess what happens to you? And you can see these in pictures, by the way, in the, in, from the book of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. They're terrifying pictures. Okay? Waiting underneath the scale is a goddess called Amit. And Amit is a really scary combo of a lion, a hippo, and a crocodile. And if your heart doesn't pass, Amit gets to eat it. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of you. So when Moshe is saying uh, to that Hashem says, I'm going to make your heart heavy. He's essentially saying to you, you're never making it into the afterlife. Wow. Right. And and it's just a very strong idea that for sure was understood at the time and that took thousands of years till we could understand it, wow. till the Book of the Dead was discovered.
0: Yeah, I'm you're totally you taught me something new today. Um, yes. I'm a little it's bit a embarrassed that I didn't know it Seder. until now, but it's really phenomenal. I also say that what it also shows us, and we know this from other places as well, but the a A, the idea of the afterlife and the idea that we must have to be we must be checked at a certain point. Yeah. Of, of, you know, what what's our what's our tally? We have there, this idea of tallying of, yeah. of, che- of of checking up how we've done in this lifetime. That that is an idea that is so ancient, and I would even say it, it's an intuitive idea to humans, like that we are held accountable for, for our sure. for our behavior. And I, and I
1: think, by the way, that Pyro thinks he's doing the right thing. I yeah, think I he feels he that his heart is going to be light. Yes. emotion says, mm, No, no. Right. You're Wow. Miscalculating.
0: Truly mind blown. Okay. We're, we're coming towards the, the last section of our podcast. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, about starters.
1: About bread. Yeah. What's more important on Pesach? What do we love to complain about that we don't get to have any chametz? So sad. How can we survive? But that's actually a super important part of the story. And there are all kinds of beautiful showed and chassidish, and we're not going to go in that direction. Okay. Um, bread is very, very important to Egyptian culture. It's also important to Jewish culture, by the way. Um, it's probably important it's to, important most, to cultures, most cultures because right? everyone had to eat. Because yeah. you have to eat. But we'll just talk about bread for a second. Bread is. Um, First of all, bread is the basic food, right? But um, bread is sacred in many ways, right? Let's go back to the Parsha two weeks ago, mm-hmm. right? Um, Yosef can't eat bread with his brothers because the Egyptians don't eat bread with the Hebrews because, you know, bread is sacred and we don't eat together, okay? Um, uh, but it's also something that you're buried with, right? We have baker's models, models of bakeries that are buried with the paros. Uh, But it's also very basic. How you have this huge slave economy, you've got to fuel it with something, you've got to fuel it with something cheap. So what did they make? They made bread and they made beer. And that's how you fed all these slaves. And we know that the slaves are well fed, because we hear about it, right? We hear about it later when on. Complains in when Avisal complains, right? Yeshavnu Al Sirha Basar, we had all that good food. And now you took us out into this godforsaken desert and we have nothing to eat, right? But the idea is you've got to leave that culture of satiety. Is that the word the way you pronounce the word? Mm-hmm. Right. Sounds good to me. Uh, you've got to leave that culture behind. It's very hard for Bnei Israel to leave that culture behind. Hashem says, go and take that bread that's not leavened, right? And Bnei Israel, what do they take with them? They take mash erotam from the word seor. They take their kneading bowls with them. We're, we're not leaving that behind. That, that's coming with us. But perhaps the most powerful idea is that you have to get rid of not just chametz, but seor right? What's seor? We think about chametz. Okay, I'm going to go through my freezer. I'm going to throw out I'll all throw those out bagels, yep. right? Everything I've been keeping since Hanukkah, it's gone. They didn't have that in the ancient world. You baked bread every day. You don't have a freezer. You don't have stores of chametz. But what you have that is much, much more valuable is seor. Seor is what we call starter, right? In the During the pandemic, everyone's making sourdough bread, right? That's the coolest new thing. It's not so new, Right? All right. All the major grains, the five grains, they have a little bit of gluten. They'll all rise eventually. But somebody at some murky point in the ancient world, perhaps in Egypt, right, left a little bit of dough left over from yesterday. And then he added it to his new dough because he didn't have so much dough. And lo and behold, what happened your bread rises so much better and that's the idea of a starter that you keep this thing that is leavening and you put it into your dough over and over again you're always saving a little bit right you can go on the internet and see these disgusting pictures of people feeding their starters right this bubbly grossness I, mean, um, I, I do it weekly
0: it's in my fridge all
1: right there you go <laughs> it not, does smell nasty it smells bad but it's very basic yeah uh, and you can't really it's, bake good there's bread with tremendous it. health
0: benefits also, okay good. the, the the modern yeast is does lots of unkind things. Started just okay, system. so here you go. It's very yeah. good,
1: and we know that in Europe, people kept starters for literally hundreds of years. Like yeah. you just keep on feeding it, and you have it. What does Hashem say? Hashem says in Nissan, get rid of that starter, get rid of my starter, Then I don't have any bread for you know after for Pesach. A,
0: a good it takes it at takes least a week to make exactly. a starter again. How
1: am I going to do that? How do I get rid of my starter? And God says you have to have faith. Right Just like you've got to leave that culture of bread behind, you've got to believe that it's going to be okay and leave that starter and have faith in Hashem that you're going to have bread again and, and and leaving behind that leavening and that element of uh, everything depends on me and material culture and relying on God
0: you know I'll say one thing which is that I I only in the past few months started making sourdough bread, and I remember that that question came up last year again. Because why did people start making sourdough bread in Corona? Because sourdough bread takes a very long time. It takes a long time. You, you have, have to make you have two you have two waves of creating the bread. Uh, you have to leave it. Oh, you have to first feed the starter. You have to leave the bread overnight. It's it's bemet bemet a huge patchki like it really is. Yeah. Um, and uh, and in the end, it doesn't make huge amounts. It really is. It's harder. And I remember that the question came up of. Do you have to throw out the starter? Yeah. Fun um, and so the question the answer is is in the basic sense, yes, but also is it a loss? Still take you a long time to remake it. But as you're speaking, forget the halachic answer. Of course the answer of is course, yes. You you that's have the whole to throw point. But I d di-
1: I didn't realize that. Of truly. You is, have to I throw didn't it realize out. that. It's the most basic chametz there is. The However, home. I will add that the Gemara does talk about the fact that you can after Pesach, take starter from your non-Jewish neighbor. Mm, yes. So you don't have to start over completely from yeah. scratch, but you do have to have this faith to say this thing that I've been growing and I've been nurturing and this child that's sitting in my Yeah, you know, it's actually a pet. It really is a pet. Your pet. Yeah. It's got to go. It's got to go because that's showing your commitment and showing your faith in God.
0: Wow. Hi, with some of these ideas, I really want to, um, I'm grateful to kick off Safer Mode. All right. Uh, and, uh, and again, I remind anyone who wants to check out We'll put a link to uh, to some of Josh Berman's work. Uh, a reminder that Kasuto really is unbelievably informative. It, he actually writes his introduction to to the commentary that he didn't finish, but the introduction to the book of of Exodus that he is not going to engage in questions of historicity of of the Exodus. He said he felt that it wasn't the job of a of an exegete; it was the job of a historian. But in his introduction to the book of of Sefer Brishit, is really where he puts out his uh, his his. Um, his programmatic statements about how he believes the Torah should be read. And so I encourage anyone who isn't familiar to check out his work. Some of it exists on the internet. You can just Google it and some of it will come up. Um, but also we will see if we can link some of that information in the show notes. So thank you so much for being here, Shuli. Thank you. This and, is well, uh, we,
1: we should come back and talk about this uh, later on when we talk about the Tzirah the Tzir'a being kicking Amisrael out of, uh, out of Eretz Canaan, also very much connected to Egyptology. So lots of stuff to talk about.
0: We will, we will definitely circle back to this topic. And I, I do want to say that for anybody who this sort of throws them a little bit theologically, please feel free to write me, and I'm happy to help sort of sort of guide you in any further reading or any further thinking. These are, they're really important topics. And as we said that even if any no one is, even if someone isn't looking to assess the historical question, which I think many people aren't interested in delving into, yeah. the learning about the ancient Near East or learning in this case about ancient Egypt simply makes the story resonate in a much deeper way. Mm-hmm. You realize you're literally missing, like I did about the heavy yeah, heart I'm of Paro, literally missing a main function of the story. So we can have tremendous meaning and tremendous import for someone's life, for their individual religious life, but you, but one is missing that understanding of how it actually was heard when it was initially yeah. said. And that has meaning, for me it's inspiring by the way. I think that seeing the Torah as something that is relevant and didactic in its initial context for me is something that's inspiring as a person and a especially as a teacher. So I think that it also has religious, spiritual import as well, but that, you know, everyone understands that differently. Yes.
1: I I would also add that if you are a Hebrew reader, I don't think it's been translated into English yet, uh, our Rabbi Amnon Bazak has a great book where he talks, Ad Hayom Hazeh, where he talks about also archaeology and text. Uh, Less in depth uh, than what Dr. Berman does, but, but a fascinating overview of this whole question.
0: I'll link that also in the show notes. Everyone have a Shabbat Shalom.
1: Shabbat Shalom.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel Rubel and this is one-on-one Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website and write us any feedback at podcast.matan.org.il. That's podcast.matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.